Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio today is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. We're so glad that you were able to join us, and I hope that you're having a very blessed Saturday. First of all, a big thank you to today's show sponsor, St. Agnes School, located in the heart of St. Paul. You can learn more about their upcoming open houses and tours by visiting stagnesschool.org. Again, that's stagnesschool.org and spell out St. S-A-I-N-T. You can catch the Bridge Builder program each Saturday here on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit mncatholic.org. Again, that's mncatholic.org. And that's slash podcasts. And you can click on the front page and you can go right to our podcast library. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. We also answer your questions. You can email them to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can build bridges uh, between faith and public life. Oftentimes we hear about uh, in, in public life that you've got to be realistic, right? That there are only a limited horizon of possibilities and we have to use prudence and recognize that it's a fallen world and there are some things that are just fixed in the way things are. And uh, we just have to be attentive to that and attuned to that and, and just deal with the ugliness and not really hope for more. Joining us today on the Bridge Builder program is one of the really emerging and fantastic young writers in the American church today, Brandon McGinley. Brandon is the an editor for EWTN Publishing, and he puts out a really helpful web new, or e-newsletter every week called These Seven Days that I, I think uh, if you've got a Magnificat, this is also a great companion as well in terms of helping you live liturgical life, looking at uh, the lives of the saints and all sorts of other liturgical and church potpourri. So Brandon's one of the really the great writers. He's a columnist uh, in a number of places, and his article in the Angeles newspaper, the newspaper of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, really caught our attention. It is called How Grace Not Going Alone Will Save, it, will save the World, and it speaks to some of these questions related to grace and realism and the importance of grace and, you, and relying on grace, even in political life. We tend to compartmentalize the two, our spiritual life and our political lives or our professional lives, but we need to bring grace into every aspect of life, including public life. And here with us is Brandon McGinley to share a little bit more about his perspective on that. Brandon, good morning. Good morning, Jason. Thanks for being with us today. And just share a little bit about what inspired you to write this really a fine piece uh, exploring uh, the importance of relying on grace, even in public life. I, I'm just increasingly frustrated um, with, the, with the, the way that we often talk about uh, politics, especially, especially in our moment now, where, where it seems like with all of the, 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 the tensions, the political and cultural and social tensions, a lot of the momentum or the incentives are toward trying to trying to, uh, to kind of play with uh, play with the big boys, play with the secularists, and uh, and on those terms. And uh, and so we often talk about realism. Then we say, well, we can't achieve X, Y, or Z. We we have to do we have to do something that might prick our consciences. In order to in order to succeed in the long run, um, we have to go along with we have to go along with um, you know certain uh, certain uh, tendencies in 
in uh, you know in modern conservative or modern liberal politics, depending on uh, depending on what what our, our end game is, that we are uncomfortable with, but in order to secure our position in the American political sphere, and and it just seems to me to be short sighted, both in terms of strategy and in terms of what is actually real. What I what I talk about in the article is how grace is real. Grace transforms. Grace elevates. Grace can even, if we allow it, allow it to, can perfect us, and not just us as individuals, but can actually perfect our families and communities, elevating us to to kind of a, a higher plane. And so, when we talk about realism, far too often we talk about realism as if we're secularists, as if grace isn't real, as if um, as if this world is all there is. But that's not realistic at all. It, it constricts the options on the table, both in terms of our personal conduct in how we engage the political world, and it constricts what's possible in terms of politics itself. And I know that you know people may be rolling their eyes and, and, and are, are kind of a bit befuddled because you know, it's hard to think of, of, of grace-filled political possibilities in a world that seems so, um, uh, so hostile. To, um, to grace, to faith, um, but uh, it's in part that way because we abandoned the field. And so I think an aggressive and, uh, and confident reassertion of, hey, more things are possible than it might seem based on the current collection of alliances and partisan, you know, partisan uh, teams, um, the, I, think, I think that actually is both it, it's both uh, truer uh, in, in the full sense of it represents the truth of faith better. And I think in the long run, it's actually what people want to hear and will actually you know, improve our position. Give our listeners an example, Brandon, of you know, one issue where you see this reality and this dynamic playing itself out, this tension between uh, being realistic to accomplish secular ends and win temporal political battles versus a bigger vision that maybe relies on grace that you know, thinks bigger, even if it doesn't seem as practical as the, as the right. other viewpoint. Yeah, uh, I would, um, you know, I, I would, I would, I would pick two off the top of my head. One uh, that that kind of one that I think challenges each side. Um, one would be would be life issues where we're very often we're tempted to say, well, we we ha- we have to allow for the possibility of abortion, or we have to allow for the possibility of assisted suicide, because even though we don't like those things. Um, it's just not it's just not practical to say oh these things need to be banned um, and uh, and so you know you see that on one side and I and I think um, and I think the I think the um, I think that compromise is, is seen is seen for what it is pretty often but it, it's important to talk to talk about it not just not just as a failure to recognize the um, the uh, uh, you know, church teaching frankly on these issues but also as a failure to recognize grace there's a despair to it that we we can't we can't actually live without we can't actually live as a society without killing children it's just that's it's a really dark view of the world it's not realistic at all um, and then the other and in some ways more complicated but I, I do think that a lot of the rhetoric certainly around immigration um, that uh, that we we have to treat people poorly in order to dissuade them from coming that we can't we can't act with charity in the in the fullest sense of the word um, as a nation because you know while me and you as individuals might be called to act charitably towards 
an individual immigrant or an immigrant family as a nation we can't that that's just not practical we're told we we can't we can't act with um with the with uh, a combination of kind of an economic and political uh a recognition of kind of economic and political uh realities and also act with uh with a profound charity and respect for the dignity of of of, of persons um because it's uh it's just just, just not realistic and um and so I think that's an example where um, we're certainly in, in both rhetoric and reality. We too often, you know, again, in, in part, I think, to kind of secure our position in certain political alliances, drop from the field, drop from our from our vocabulary, the language of grace, the grace that that allows both us as individuals and and a culture and a nation to act with the fullness of truth and not just with uh, and not just uh, you know making compromises. That was going to be my next question. Do you see that the reality that you're describing playing itself out when Catholics on either side of the political spectrum are really passionate about a particular issue and then see the political parties as the major vehicle for advancing that particular cause, whether it be uh, the pro-life cause on one side, the cause of worker justice or immigrant rights on the other side, and therefore they keep their mouth shut or keep quiet or even in some cases buy into the ideology, the, the, liber- the libertarian element of ideology in the particular right. party in which they're involved in. Is that something that's a part of that dynamic that you're discussing too? I think so. I think so, definitely. I, I, you know, it's, and it goes to, it goes to, you know, there's the realism that we um, that I want to kind of undermine, where where we make compromises on issues, but then there's also this kind of um, strategic realism where where we feel like the alliances and the kind of like I said the partisan teams that we are used to uh, are permanent, as if as if they were as if they've come down from heaven and this is the only way these alliances can ever possibly be, and if we and if we try to work outside of them. We are we are being imprudent or, or or whatever. But who could have predicted even three years, even four years ago, the the transformation of the Republican Party? Who could have predicted six or seven years ago the tensions within the Democratic Party between a, a hard left faction with with uh, Senator Sanders and Warren, and um, but then also a faction with the Democratic Party that is increasingly catering to the upper middle class and the upper classes? How how do we you know these these things have changed in ways that, we're, as we're living through them, we don't necessarily see because we're busy with other things. And it seems uh, these these changes, you know, they just kind of it's kind of happened. But historically, we're going to look back on this as as the beginning of a, a major realignment in the way the parties function that was not immediately predictable to most people. And so when we when we act as if um, as if first of all the uh, the alliances are permanent. And second of all, as if we as Catholics are constrained by those alliances, when in fact we have resources in sacramental grace that should allow us to think confidently outside of those alliances, we end up, I, I would argue, just neutering our witness, both in terms of political activism and in terms of the broader witness of what it means to be a Christian in the 21st century. You know, as as you know, the American Republic was founded on a particular anthropological worldview that had, took a very dark view of human nature. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. and, and in many ways, it's our political institutions are constructed uh, precisely because they have a very limited view of what politics can accomplish. 
What yeah. impact does the way in which our institutions or the institutions of liberalism are constructed, how does that play into the dynamic? Does that shape who we are, or do we need to be more proactive in shaping that landscape? I think I think one of the one of the things about the what you, what you kind of described there is the, the liberal anthropology, or certainly the anthropology of 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 liberalism as it as it was instantiated in the United States, is that it tends to it tends to create what it assumes, and so if we assume that the best we can possibly do as a society is pit interests against one another. Um, and so that so that in competing with one another, they no one uh, you know no no one conception of the truth ever really wins the field, and uh, and that the like I said the best we could hope for is kind of the permanent competition of all against all, then that ends up with what you have you end up with you end up with a civilization that can't imagine any kind of cooperation um, beyond with one's own kind of with, with beyond with within one's own faction. Um, and we also end up unable to imagine a world where where the truth really matters in politics. So we end up living in the world that was imagined by the original liberals of the 18th century, uh, which isn't necessarily the truth of anthropology. It's not necessarily the truth of the way human beings interact um, or, or able to interact with grace. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, yeah. Like I said, it, it ends up it ends up creating what it assumes, and we are all formed by that. And thinking outside of that is one of the most difficult things you can do. It's like uh, we don't realize it. it's like a fish in water. You don't fish doesn't realize he's swimming. Um, just that's just that's just this environment. And so realizing that uh, that we are formed by that in ways that are both um, you know uh, subtle and extreme um, is is one of the most important things we can do to kind of break out of the mold. Yeah, our political environment and the way in which our institutions, our political institutions and even our political culture is shaped, it's almost like uh, liberalism has its own Holy Spirit and it's called the invisible hand and the competition of ideas and the competition in the marketplace. Eventually the good will rise to the top, but it's rooted in competition and factional politics and things of that nature as opposed to a, a substantive vision of the good. In fact, our institutions in some ways eschew a substantive vision of the good, and that maybe is one way in which our horizons and our political views uh, can be constricted. Brandon, you, you talk about the importance of grace, and and you alluded to it a moment ago in the sacraments. And what might a sacramental view of the world um, bring to this conversation? How might uh, things in our, our political horizons changed if we looked at community life uh, more like it should be in the body of Christ? That's that's a that's a big question, and it's one it's one that they, that that it's hard to escape radical conclusions about the necessity of sacramental grace to the maintenance of society, because if 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 what we're saying is true, if grace is essential to um, to, to to living as we should as human beings, to living with that kind of fullness of truth, with a fullness of 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 cooperation for the common good. And if sacramental grace is is, uh, is 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 an essential aspect of that, um, then then we end up we end up with, with 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 a view of the sacraments as being essential to society, without which society devolves into the war of all against all, um, where everyone the best anyone can do is 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 look out for his own, maybe his own family, 
maybe maybe if you're really lucky your own neighborhood but at the end of the day it's um there's there's no there's no conception of the common good because it is by grace that we are able to to form communities at all communities in the in the real integrated and in substantive sense so um so so the radical the radical conclusion becomes a, a, a world a, a civilization that that is not founded in sacramental grace that is not founded in, in whose families are not founded in the grace of, of the sacrament of matrimony who are not sustained by by the eucharist who are not healed not just as individuals but as communities by the um by the sacrament of confession um we could go on and on um that's everything everything's permitted, but uh, nothing's forgiven, right? Uh, isn't that yes, the, the exactly. way things are? The exactly. cancel yeah. the cancel culture of today. Everything's permitted, but nothing's forgiven. Right. And w- yeah, and, and yes, that's exactly right. And and you end up you end up with a you know one of the things I often think is that our problem isn't so much that we deny sin, we recognize sin. We might misconstrue it, but we recognize sin. But what we can't imagine is forgiveness, and that. That results both in profound psychological and emotional distress, and then that then gets projected outward onto our communities and families. You've highlighted for us the importance of a sacramental imagination in a political culture of shifting sands, where, as you said a few years ago, we couldn't have imagined that Donald Trump would be president, that there'd be these factions within the Democratic Party. Uh, Even 30 years ago, uh, the fall of communism and the reality that the fall of communism was precipitated by a revolution in the heart uh, with Pope John Paul II, not talking primarily about politics to his Polish brothers and sisters, but talking about God and the recovery of who we are in relation to God. So Brandon McGinley has written an excellent piece. Uh, It's found in the Angeles newspaper, the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, How Grace Not Going It Alone Will Save the World. He's helped us unpack that a little bit more today. I encourage you to check out his writing through his e-newsletter, These Seven Days, and look for him all over the web. He is editor of EWTN Books and one of the great uh, emerging young writers in the church. Brandon, thanks for joining us and unpacking this interesting issue. Yeah, no problem, Jason. It was great. God bless you. And we'll be back in a moment. My name is Sister Teresa Christie, and I am a Dominican sister who is privileged to be assigned to teach at St. Agnes School in St. Paul, Minnesota. I am a Dominican sister of Mary Mother of the Eucharist from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I have really enjoyed being at St. Agnes and have been blessed to reside in the newly renovated convent connected to the school. I am delighted that we are able to offer a witness of our Dominican life to the students at all ages from preschool through grade 12. For example, my sophomore U.S. history class is right next door to the senior hallway, which is full of life. Or I can walk down a floor and see Sister Mary Consolata in her fourth grade classroom. I've been really impressed with the depth of the students' faith and the commitment of the faculty at St. Agnes. I love the classical liberal arts curriculum of the school and its dedication to teaching the Catholic faith. St. Agnes School is proud to promote an authentic witness from its faculty. Preschool through 12th grade in the heart of St. Paul. Discover a school where you will be known. Learn more by scheduling a personal tour for you and your family at stagnesschool.org. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag segment, where we take your comments and questions about what is piquing your interest in politics and the life of faith today. Kit, what have you got for us? 
This week in the mailbag, we're tackling questions surrounding the issue of payday lending. Oftentimes, you'll see in various uh, poor neighborhoods often these payday lending shops. And oftentimes the argument is made that these lenders, they're providing to people who are in immediate need. They're providing them the cash they need to help fill the gap until that next payday. So when and why would we need to regulate this practice? You know, why would we want to take that option away for people? Aren't we just harming those in need? That's often the question. Payday loans are an example of what the church has always condemned as usury, which is loaning money, uh, especially to people in need, not just at high interest rates, but uh, interest rates in general. Um, This is seen as a really a a grave sin because it exploits the poor and the vulnerable people who are disadvantaged and in difficult circumstances. And that uh, sin of usury we see today with the prevalence of payday loans. What are payday loans? They are small, high, small dollar, high interest loans requiring full payback on the borrower's next payday. So typically what will happen is that you go to a payday lender, you need a quick infusion of cash. Uh, you'll give them your bank account uh, <laughs> as uh, a security for the loan that they give you. And if you don't pay it back, they'll pull it right out of your bank account. Now, the way in which payday loan lenders make their money is when you roll, you keep rolling these loans over. You can't pay it back the first time you take out the loan. So then you got to roll it over into a new loan with a higher interest rate. And the interest rate starts accumulating more and more fees. The loan becomes bigger and bigger. Uh, these loans typically carry triple-digit interest rates are due in full on a borrower's next payday. And like I said, they require direct access to a borrower's bank account. Because of these features, borrowers often cannot both repay the payday loan and meet their obligations without having to quickly reborrow. And again, that's how the payday lenders make their money. So, of course, the answer is, well, if you need cash, you need cash. Why do they do so repeatedly? Now, payday lenders will claim that payday loans are for unexpected emergency expenses and that they fulfill a service. But the reality is that 70% of payday borrowers first use payday loans to cover ordinary expected expenses Uh, like an electric bill, for example. As such, triple-digit interest payday loan is not a solution for meeting ongoing bills. And in Minnesota, the typical payday loan borrower takes out 10 loans per year. By the end of 20 weeks, an individual will pay $400 in charges for a typical $380 payday loan. Payday loans don't solve financial pressures. They, in fact, make it worse. So Minnesota Catholic Conference and our partner, the Joint Religious Legislative Coalition, have been proactive over the years supporting caps um, both in, in terms of interest rates uh, and caps on the number of loans that payday loan payday lenders uh, can put out there and make available. Now, again, the devil's advocate question is, well, what if people need cash? Aren't these payday lenders providing a service? Fortunately, a number of banks have stepped in with more responsible lending solutions that allow people have to have access to uh, loans, uh, small dollar loans for short periods of time um, with lower interest rates and are more financially sound lending services and lending practices are more ethical, especially from the standpoint of the lender, the lender bank. So it's really an issue of concern. You see these storefront payday lending uh, shops all over the place, but it's important that Catholics know how they make their money, what they're doing to the community. They're putting uh, those in the community more at risk, creating, putting people in precarious financial positions, and it's incumbent upon us. Even churches in uh, Minnesota have become involved in small lending practices and microloans as a practice of their church to help people in need. 
So there can be creative solutions, whether in the private sector, whether the nonprofit sector, to help people who are in serious financial need covering basic expenses, not just credit card bills, but you know, utility bills, to get access uh, to those quick infusions of cash when they're needed. But payday loans are not a solution. They don't help people. They put people at serious financial risk, and they're a detriment to the common good as well, which is why we have opposed them pretty strongly and uh, supported caps in a number of ways on payday loans over the years. Before we go today, we have just a couple more minutes, but we want to give all of our listeners practical tips for how they can start living out their faith in the public arena. What do we have this week for our bricklayer segment? The bricklayer segment is an important one because it gives you an opportunity to live in a concrete way your faith in public life. And oftentimes we talk about politics as being about showing up. And that's really uh, one of the most important takeaways uh, that people can have about politics is that oftentimes it just means showing up. Whether that's in a meeting with your legislator, a town hall, people often don't know that legislators and public officials, lawmakers, they they are accessible people. They want to hear from you and they want to hear your perspective. It's important. So we do need to show up. And it's important that we show up oftentimes collectively. Collective action can make a difference. If you want to move a mountain, you've got to find an army to push. And so building up a groundswell of public support for a particular issue matters. One of the pieces of legislation the Minnesota Catholic Conference uh, opposed last session in 2019 was the mandated statewide comprehensive sex ed bill that would create curricular dynamics and education initiatives in within the public schools around questionable, it would be the charitable way to put it, but very destructive, I think is the more proper way, uh, norms and sexua- about sexuality, gender identity, abortion, et cetera, et cetera. We know that Planned Parenthood uh, as an organization was a principal mover and advocate for this type of comprehensive sex ed legislation. This isn't just the birds and the bees, folks. Uh, this is a normative judgments about uh, sexuality, basically rooted in the idea that as long as you practice safe sex or uh, are doing it in a consensual way, they're not good or bad practices. It's really just about establishing consent and being safe. And that's really not the message that we want being brought to our young people and then having you know, advocates from these sorts of organizations coming into our schools and educating schools about uh, sexual identity and best sexual practices. This is schools and activists usurping the role of parents as first educators of their children. A group of parents have gotten together to do a rally on this piece of legislation. Now, we are able to defeat that legislation. It was not included in the K-12 education omnibus bill, even though it had passed the, it was part of the House uh, version of that bill. It was not part of the Senate bill and ultimately did not pass. But certainly it's something that's in a major initiative of some activist groups and some legislators. It'll be brought back eventually in some form. So a number of parents are getting involved to speak out against that. And they're having a rally. It's called the Protect Kids Rally. That's going to be on Sunday, September 22nd from 1.30 to 3.30 on the Capitol steps. That's rain or shine. You can join families and, and others from across Minnesota to tell legislators to protect children from a Minnesota school mandate that schools must teach comprehensive sex ed, a curricula being imposed and pushed by Planned Parenthood. If you want more information, go to protectkidsrally.com, protectkidsrally.com. And again, it's about collective action and it's about showing up. 
So this is an opportunity, if you haven't been to a rally at the Capitol before, to go visit the Capitol and at the same time join with others to make your voice heard. So again, that's coming up Sunday, September 22nd. It's the Protect Kids Rally. You can find more information at protectkidsrally.com. That's from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m., and that's rain or shine. Now, this is not an official Minnesota Catholic Conference-sponsored event. We're just making people aware of it, so we don't take responsibility for the messaging or the speakers, but we do want people to know about it because it's an important issue, and we stand with those activists who are supporting it. So again, that's the Protect Kids Rally on the 22nd of September, and if you want more information, go to protectkidsrally.com. That's all the time we have for today. We'd like to again thank our show sponsor for this episode, St. Agnes School. Located in the heart of St. Paul, you can learn more about their open houses and tours by visiting stagnesschool.org. Again, that's stagnesschool.org with saint spelled out. Your organization can become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. By doing so, you will help others bring the Catholic faith into public life. Become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder and let our listeners know that they have a great opportunity to engage with you and your organization. For more information, contact our producer, Kit Cross, via our email at show at mncatholic.org for sponsorship opportunities. Again, if you miss an episode, catch us on your favorite podcast app or go to our webpage at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thank you for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, Have a blessed Saturday.